Section 29 of Uther and Egrain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uther and Egrain by Warwick Deeping. Book 3 The War in Wales. Chapter 9. It was early and a clear dewy morning when Uther rode down alone from the palace by a narrow track that curled through the shrubberies clothing the palace hill. A generous sky piled its blue dome with mountainous clouds that billowed up above the horizon. The laurels in the shrubbery flickered their leaves like innumerable scales of silver in the sun. Amber sun rays slanted through the dense branches of the yews and flashed on the red harness that burnt down the winding track. The wind sang, the green larches tossed their kerchiefs. In the distance, the sea glimmered to the white frescoes of the sky. Uther, Peleus once more, tossed his spear to the tall trees and burst into the brave swing of a chant d'amour. With caracol and flapping mane, his horse took his lord's humor. It was weather to live and love in, weather for red lips and the clouding down of perfumed hair. God and the saints, what a grand thing to be strong, to have a clean heart to show to a woman's eyes. What were all the baser fevers of life balanced against the splendid madness of a great passion? Down through Caerleon's streets he rode unknown of any on his tall black horse. It was pleasant to be unthroned for once, and to put a kingdom from off his shoulders. With what a swing the good beast carried him! How the towers and turrets danced in the sun! How bright were the eyes of the women who passed him by! All the world seemed greener, the sky bluer, the city merrier. The laughter of the children in the gutter echoed out of heaven. The old hag who sold golden lemons under a beech tree seemed almost a Madonna, a being from the better world. Uther laughed in his heart, and blessed God and Merlin. It is one of the rare reflections of philosophy dear to the contemplative mind, how joy jostles pain in the world, and pleasure in gold and scarlet elbows the grey-cloaked form of grief. Even innocent merriment may throw a rose in the face of one who mourns, innocent indeed of the desire to mock. The throstle sings in the tree while the beggar lies under it dying. So Uther the king flashed hate in the eyes of one who watched knowing him only that morning as Peleus the knight. In an old play the jealous man saw the devil ride by and promptly followed him on the chance of finding his lost wife, deeming indeed the devil's guidance propitious for such a quest. It was the shield that caught Gorloise's eye as he stood on a balcony of his house and looked out over Caerleon. The device smote him sudden as the lash of a whip. The red harness, the black horse, the painted shield mingled a picture that burnt into his brain with a vividness that passed comprehension. He knew well enough to whom such arms should belong. Had he not carried them fraudulently to his own doubtful profit? This knight must be that Peleus whose past had worked such mischief with his own machinations. That Peleus who had won Egrain the novice fresh from the shadow of her convent trees. Gorlois watched the man go by, with a kind of superhuman envy twisting in him like a colic. The smart of it made him stiffen, go pale, gnaw his lip. 
If this was the knight Peleus, what then? Gorlois could not reason for the moment. His brain seemed a mass of molten metal in a bowl of iron. Convictions settled slowly, hardened, and took form. Egrain had loved the man Peleus. Egrain was his wife. He had lost her and Brestius also. Poison and the sword waited to do their work. Supposing then this Peleus was in quest of Egrain. Supposing they had come to know each other again. Supposing Brestius and Peleus were one and the same man. Hell and furies! What a thought was this! It goaded Gorlois into action. He would ride after the man, hunt him, track him, in hope of some fragment of the truth. Hazard and hate, blood and battle, these were more welcome than chafing within walls as in a cage, or frying on a bed as on a gridiron. Gorlois's voice rang through gallery and hall like a battle cry. Ho there! My sword and harness! There was a grimness in the sound that made those who came to arm him bustle for dear life. They knew his black, furious humor, the hand that struck like a mace, the tyranny that took blood for trifles. The stoutest of them were cowards before that marred and moody face. Be as brisk as they would, they were too slow for Gorlois's temper, a temper vicious as a wounded bear's. God and the saints, was ever man served by such a pack of stiff-fingered fools? The devil take your fumbling. Go and gird up harlots, or hold cooking pots. On with that helmet. A fellow, very white about the mouth, clapped the cask on and drew a quick breath when the angry eyes withered him no longer. Armlets, breastplates, greaves, quishes, all were on. Gorlois seemed to emit fire like metal at white heat. He went clanging down stairway and through atrium to the courtyard, where a horse-boy held a white charger. Gorlois cuffed the lad aside, mounted with a spring, took his spear from an esquire, and rode straight for the gate, his horse's hoofs sparking fire from the courtyard stones. Half an hour or more had gone since Peleus had passed by on his black horse, and Gorlois spurred at a gallop through Caerleon bent on catching sight of the Red Knight before he should have ridden into the covering masses of the woods. Peleus, meanwhile, rode on like a lad whose first quest led him into the infinite romance of the unknown. Woods and waters called. Bare night and the blink of the stars summoned up that strangeness in life that is like wine to the heart of the strong and the brave. He was young again, young in the first glory of arms. The world shone glamoured as of old as he turned from the high road to a bridle track that led up through woods towards the north. Holding on at a level pace, he passed the woods and saw them rolling back like a green cataract towards the sea. Bare hills saluted him. The beacon height, with its great wooden cross, stood out against the sky. Mile on mile of wooded land billowed out before him clouded with a blue haze where the domes of the trees rose innumerably rank on rank. The Abbey of the Holy Mary lay low in meadows on his left, its fish pools shimmering in the sun, its orchards densely green about its walls. Two leagues or more of wood and wild, a climb over hills, a long descent, and Usk again shone out, trailing distant in the hollows. A crumbling tower stood up above the trees. Peleus passed close to it, 
giving antiquity due reverence as was his custom, looking up at its ivied walls, its crown of jelly flowers, its windows wistful as a blind man's eyes. Another mile and Usk ran at his feet. A hermitage stood by the ford. Peleus gave the good man a piece of silver and besought his prayers before he rode down and splashed through the river to the further bank. Heathland and Scrub rolled to the east, merging into the blue swell of a low line of hills. It was wild country enough, haunted by snipe and crested plover, an open solitude that swept into a purple streak against the northern sky. It was noon before Peleus had made an end of its shadeless glare and taken to the hills that rose gently towards the east. His red harness moving over the green was lost to Gorlois, who had missed the trail long ago in the woods beyond St. Mary's. It was dusk when the Cornishman came guided to the ford and learnt from the hermit there that the chase lay across Usk and eastward over the heath. Gorlois gave the man no piece of silver, only a savage curse to gag his alms-seeking. Night came and caught him in the open, and rather than wander astray in the dark, he spent the night under a whin-bush, calming his incontinent temper as best he might. An hour past noon, Peleus stood on the last hill slope and looked down upon the massed woodland at his feet. Here at last was Merlin's Valley choked up with trees, a green lake of foliage that rippled from ridge to ridge. Peleus, with the sun at his back, stood and looked down on it with a kind of quiet awe. So Godfrey and his knights looked down upon the holy city. So Dante saw Beatrice in his vision, and Cortez gazed at the Pacific in the west. Peleus had taken his helmet from his head and hung it at his saddle-bow. There was a grand hunger on his face, a passionate calm, as he abode on the hilltop with his tall spear a black streak against the sun. Mystery waved him on to the great oaks whose tops rose like green flames to the blue of the sky. Could Egrain be in this valley? Would he set eyes on her that day and see the bronze gloss of her hair go shimmering through some woodland gallery? It was nigh upon a year since he had seen her. It had been summer then, and it was summer now. His heart was singing as it had sung on that mere island when Egrain had looked into his eyes under the cedar tree. He had borne much, endured much since then. Time had hallowed memory and shed a crimson luster over the past. Manwise for the great love that was in him, he almost feared to look on her again, lest she should have changed in face or in heart. Great God, what a thought was that! It had never smitten him before. Stiffened by his own strong constancy, he had dowered Egrain with equal loyalty of soul nor had considered the lapse of time and the crumbling power of ours. The thought brought a dew of sweat to his forehead and made him cold even in the sun. No, honor to God, the girl had a heart to be trusted, or he had never loved her as he did. Shaking the bridle, he rode down into the murk of the trees. He had to slant his spear and to bow his head often as the great boughs swooped to the ground. The dim glamour of the place had a sinister effect upon his mind. It solemnized him, touched the spiritual chords of his heart, uncovered the somewhat gloomy groundwork of philosophy that lay deep under the fabric of religious habit. Merlin had told a tale and nothing more. God's blessings were not man's blessings, God's ways not man's ways. 
Peleus had learnt to look for what he might have called the contradictions of divine charity. We are smitten when we pray for a blessing, chided when desirous of comfort. Life would seem at times a gigantic tyranny for the creation of patience. Peleus remembered the past and kept his hopes and desires well in hand. At times he judged himself not far from the bottom of the valley, for through gaps in the foliage overhead he could see the woods on the further slope towering up magnificently to touch the sky. Still further, the long galleries of the wood arched out upon grassland gemmed with summer flowers. Showers of sunlight told of an open sky. He was soon out of the shadows and standing under the wool's haw, with the dale Merlin had pictured stretching north and south before his eyes. The scene smiled up at him from its bath of sunlight, the green meadows flecked white, blue, and gold, the diverse foliage of the trees, the little pool smooth as crystal, the solemn barriers of the surrounding woods. He looked first of all for the cottage built of timber, and could not see it for its overshadowing trees. Nonetheless, by the pool a girl in a blue smock stood looking up towards him, her face showing oval white from her loosened hair. Peleus held his breath for the moment, then saw well enough that it was not Egrain. Meanwhile, the figure in blue had disappeared as though in fear of him. He could no longer see the girl from where he watched on the edge of the wood. Riding out, he sallied down through the long grass with its haze of flowers. His eyes turned with a steadfast eagerness to the pool in the meadows. His impatience grew with every step, but he was outwardly cool as any veteran. First the brown thatch of the cottage came into view, then the blue smock of the girl who stood by the porch and watched. Last of all, Peleus saw a gleam of armor through the gloom of a cedar tree, heard the neigh of a horse, the jar of a swinging shield. The sight made his heart beat more briskly than ever ghost or goblin could have done. Pushing through the trees, he came full upon a knight mounted on a gray horse, who was advancing towards him bearing on his shield the cognizance of a cloven heart. The knight on the grey horse reined in and abode stone still in the meadows, the sunlight flashing on his helmet and such points of his harness uncovered by his surcoat. Peleus, as he rode down, took stock of the stranger with an eagerness that was half-jealous Mulgray his perspicuity of soul. What had this splendid gentleman to do with Egrain the novice? Truth to tell, Peleus would rather have had some humbler person to serve as guide on such a quest. The knight on the grey horse never budged a foot. Peleus saw that he carried no spear and that his sword was safe in his scabbard. This looked like peace. Drawing up some three paces away, he scanned the strange knight over from head to foot, voted him a passable man, and admired his armor. And since his whole soul was set on a certain subject, he made no delay over courteous generalities, but came at once to the point at issue. "'Greetings, sir. I have ridden from Caerleon to speak with you.' The knight in the violet surcoat swayed in the saddle as though shaken by a spear-thrust on his painted shield. Peleus noted that both his hands were tangled up in the grey horse's mane, though nothing could be seen of the face behind the fixed visor of the helmet. A voice, husky, toneless, feeble, answered him after a moment's silence. "'What would you with me, knight of the red shield?' "'There is a lady whose name is Egrain, I seek her. "'I have been forewarned that a knight lodging in this valley has knowledge of her, "'and you, monsieur, seem to be that knight.' 
That is the truth, quoth the cracked, husky voice from the helmet. Peleus considered a moment and held his peace. There was something strange about this night, something tragical, something that touched the heart. Peleus's instinct for superb miseries took hold of him with a queer, twisting grip that made him shudder. His dark eyes smoldered as he watched the strange night, and gave voice to the grim thought that lay heavy on his mind. The lady is not dead. No, said the husky voice with blunt brevity. And she is well-fortuned? Passably. Thank God, said Peleus. There was a dry sob in the brazen helmet, but Peleus never heard the sound. He was staring into the woods with large luminous eyes and a half-smile on his lips, as though his thoughts pleased him. Is the lady Egraine far from hence? he asked presently. If you will follow me, my lord, I can bring you to her in less than an hour. Peleus flushed red to the forehead. His dark eyes beamed. He looked a god of a man as he sat bareheaded on his black horse, his face aglow like the face of a martyr. The knight of the cloven heart looked at him, flapped his bridle, and rode on. Peleus said never a word as they passed up the valley. There were deep thoughts in his heart, yearnings and ecstasies of prayer that held him in a stupor of silence. His was a grandeur of mind that grew the grander for the majesty of passion. There was no blurting of questions, no gabbling of news, no chatter, no flurry. Like a mountain he was towering, sable-browed, impenetrable, while the thunder of suspense lasted. The knight on the grey horse watched him narrowly with a white look under his helmet that was infinitely plaintive. At the northern end of the valley, on the very edge of the forest, stood a thicket of gnarled thorns still smothered with the snow of early summer. The knight of the cloven heart drew rein in the long grass and pointed Peleus to these white pavilions under the near umbrage of the oaks. "'Look yonder,' said the voice. Peleus answered with a stare. Would you see your lady? Be careful how you jest, my friend. I jest not, Uther Pendragon. Get you down and tether your horse. Go in amid yon trees and look into the forest. I swear on the cross you shall see what you desire. Peleus gave the knight a long look, said nothing, dismounted, threw the bridle over a bough. Then he thrust his spear into the ground and went bareheaded in among the trees. Standing under the shadow of a great oak, he peered long into the glooms, saw nothing living but a rabbit feeding in the grass. Suddenly a voice called to him. Peleus! Peleus! It was a wondrous cry, clear and plaintive, yet tremulous with feeling. It ran through the woods like silver, bringing back the picture of a solemn beech wood under moonlight and a girl tied naked to the trunk of a tree. A great luster of awe swept over Peleus's face. His eyes were big and luminous as the eyes of a blind man. He groped with his hands as he passed back under the may trees to the valley. In the long grass stood a woman in armor, her helmet thrown aside and her red-gold hair pouring marvelous in the sunlight over her violet surcoat. Her head was thrown back so as to show the full sweep of her shapely throat. 
Her face was very pale under her parted hair, while her lids drooped over eyes that seemed to swim with unshed tears. Her hands, slightly outstretched, quivered as with a shuddering impulse from her heart, and her half-parted lips looked as though they were molded to breathe forth a moan. Peleus stood and stared at her as a dead man might look at God. He drew near step by step, his face white as egrains, his eyes as deep with desire as hers. Neither of them said a word, but stood and looked into each other's faces as into heaven. Odd, solemnized silence. Among them towered the green woods. The meadows rippled from them with their broidery of flowers. The scent of the white may swept fragrant on the air. Solitude was with them, and the mild smile of nature glimmered with the sunlight over the trees. Egrain spoke first. Peleus, was all she said. The man gave a great sob, fell on his knees, and would have kissed her surcoat. Egrain bent down to him with eyes that shone like two deep wells of love. Both her hands were upon Peleus's shoulders. His face was turned to hers. Kneel not to me. Egrain. Peleus. Let me touch you. There, there, you have my hand. My God, my God. Egrain gave a low cry, half knelt, half fell before him. Peleus's arms caught her. His face hung over hers. Her hair fell down and trailed a golden pool upon the grass. She put her hands up and touched his hair, smiled wonderfully, and looked at him as though she were dying. Kiss me, Peleus. Peleus drew a deep breath. His body seemed to quake. His whole soul was sucked up by the girl's lips. Egrain, was all he said. Her face blazed, her hands clung about his neck. Again, again. My God, have I not prayed for this? His eyes were large and wonderful to look upon. There was such awe and love in them that an angel might have looked thus upon the Christ and have earned no reproach. Egrain kissed his lips, crept close into his bosom, hid her face, and wept. End of section 29. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa.